Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Tim Besley, and I'd like to welcome you to the launch of the uh, LSE Wealth Tax Commission this afternoon. Uh, it was published this morning, and we have uh, the three commissioners uh, who were also authors of that report to uh, um, give us an overview uh, of their thinking and uh, to go through some of the analysis that underpins their message. Um, the aim of the commission was to investigate both the desirability and feasibility of wealth of, of a wealth tax. Obviously, we're at a particular moment in uh, policy where many ideas that I think were, were long forgotten or set to one side have suddenly become uh, things that we're we're looking at. And I think the, the wealth, uh, the idea of implementing a wealth tax is, is just such an idea. And I'm sure this afternoon we're going to, to learn a lot. Um, the three commissioners that we have who are all going to speak as part of the launch are Arun Avani, who's an assistant professor of economics at the University of Warwick, Emma Chamberlain, who's a barrister at Pump Court Tax Chambers and also a visiting professor at the LSE, and Andy Summers, who's an associate professor of law here at the LSE. Um, the event is supported and sponsored by the uh, International Inequalities Institute. Okay, we're ready to start. So um, first question is why take this report uh, at this time? Um, there's two reasons, I think. The first, we all know we're living in a once in a generation crisis. Um, this is something that um, has been topical uh, for some time now, uh, the past six months, um, but in terms of wealth taxes, these haven't been considered seriously for nearly 50 years. And we thought that it was time to think big on tax policy to really match the scale of this challenge ahead. And our worry was that um, given that it's past half a century since we last thought about the question of should the UK have a wealth tax, we were really left a bit unprepared for this debate. So the Wealth Tax Commission was established in April 2020. Uh, it comprises three commissioners, that's myself, Aaron Advani and Emma Chamberlain. And we bring a mix of expertise to the project. We all felt that it was really important that um, this question of um, tax policy is addressed from uh, the perspective of not only academics, but also practicing um, tax practitioners with real world experience uh, and coming from a mix of disciplines, uh, economics uh, and law and accounting. Uh, and we brought in for this uh, a network of over 50 international experts, um, including policymakers uh, from uh, government, uh, from think tanks, including the IFS, Institute for Government, Resolution Foundation, uh, the OECD, um, tax practitioners from all around the world looking at how wealth taxes have worked or not worked um, in other countries. And together they've produced um, the evidence on which we rely for this main report. Um, that's 36 evidence papers um, and over half a million words um, of total evidence that we are drawing on um, in having produced this report. So what we're going to present to you today and that was launched this morning is our final report, reflecting on and drawing on all of that uh, evidence. And in the report, we reach 
conclusions independently of those contributors. Um, but we thank them for um, the evidence without which this wouldn't have been uh, feasible for us. So the first question then is what is uh, a wealth tax and how does it differ from uh, our existing taxes on wealth? So we treated the remit of this report as um, covering a broad-based tax on the ownership of wealth. And what we mean by that uh, is a tax that applies to all assets minus any debts. Um, so for example, um, if you own a house but you have a mortgage, then your net wealth over that property would be um, the value of the house less the mortgage uh, outstanding debt. Um, and the idea is that this would cover a broad base um, of all assets and debts, uh, rather than um, a narrower set of property taxes. For example, you could think of um, council tax serving crudely like a uh, rather ineffective tax on property in particular. But the distinction with a wealth tax, as we call it, is that it's comprehensive covering all assets and debts. Um, of course, we do have uh, other taxes on people with wealth uh, currently, so, for example, um, inheritance tax uh, is a tax uh, on transfers of wealth, um, either at death or shortly before death. Um, we have income tax on investment income. Uh, we have capital gains tax on um, capital gains, um, which is the increase in value of an asset um, between when it was bought and when it's sold. So we have these taxes on uh, people's returns on wealth and when they transfer wealth and on some types of their property, but a wealth tax is different in that it's broad-based covering all forms of wealth. So what is a one-off wealth tax specifically? Um, we think of this as a response to an exceptional crisis. Uh, we know that the situation that um, the UK is in is one that um, we can expect only uh, once in a generation, if not longer. Um, and so a one-off wealth tax is quite unlike most taxes that we have, which recur year on year. Instead, this is treated as an exceptional one-off levy. Uh, in fact, in the report, um, we think it would be helpful to call this the COVID recovery tax, really to emphasise um, that unique, not to be repeated um, assessment. So the way that this works is that the tax would be assessed on a single date. Um, Emma will talk later about that, but we don't recommend any particular uh, date. That's not part of our remit um, to say exactly when this should happen. Um, but the assessment should be on a single date um, that fixes the wealth tax liability, uh, but it can be nevertheless paid over several uh, subsequent years, just like paying the instalments on a loan. Um, this approach is crucially different from what you might have um, heard about in terms of annual wealth taxes. There are some other countries uh, across Europe that have annual wealth taxes. Uh, there used to be more and some of those have been abolished. And there's been quite a lot of commentary on how some of those uh, annual wealth taxes have uh, failed or not delivered on expectations. Um, but as Aaron's going to explain, uh, a one-off wealth tax has some fundamentally different economic properties. It's much harder to avoid uh, and it's more efficient 
uh, and comes at lower relative administrative costs. So we're really talking about quite a different um, structure of tax when we think about a one-off wealth tax in particular. So um, why have a wealth tax? Well, um, we set out to ask this question of the public um, and uh, in July 2020, as part of the evidence contributed to this um, project, um, Karen Rowlingson, professor at University of Birmingham, um, and two colleagues from Ipsos Mori, um, conducted a poll of a nationally representative um, sample of over 2,000 uh, members of the public uh, and asked them their views on um, questions of tax policy. Uh, and one of the questions that they asked was, if the government decides to raise taxes, which of the following measures do you most strongly support? Um, and you can see here that the, um, that the idea of a wealth tax came out um, as the most supported um, option here, far ahead of increases in income tax, um, VAT, or indeed council tax um, and capital gains tax. Now, you might be thinking uh, a couple of things at this point. Um, so one is, what do the public actually know currently about a wealth tax? I just said that it hasn't been um, studied for um, something like 50 years. How could people know um, if they want this or not? Uh, and the other sort of cynical view might be, well, this is just people saying that they like taxes that they won't um, have to pay themselves. So the question I think that we want that we set ourselves um, to answer uh, is, is to stand back a little bit from uh, that immediate policy preference and treat that um, seriously, but with you know, some healthy degree of scepticism and ask what would a wealth tax actually um, deliver? Um, and this reflects what we consider to be our role on this project. Um, the three of us um, have a lot of experience um, thinking about and writing about tax policy, um, but in the end, there are some questions that are not for us to answer. Uh, our view is very strongly that um, it's for the public to tell the experts what they want, and the role of experts is to facilitate, is to help the public deliver those aims. So in our analysis, uh, and what I'm gonna show you in a moment, we place more weight on the public's reasons for why they think they want a wealth tax rather than the immediate um, policy preferences. There's plainly um, from our analysis um, of this study, uh, a lot of current electoral support, it would seem, uh, for a wealth tax, but we want to go deeper than that and just relying on that um, observation to get into what are people's motivations? Why do they um, think that this would be a good idea? And to what extent would a wealth tax actually deliver on those objectives? So we distilled from uh, the public survey and focus group analysis, four key priorities for the public in thinking about tax policy post coronavirus. The first is that the tax should raise significant revenue. Um, this is reflected in um, responses to the survey that talked about filling the hole in public finances um, and raising money for public services. Those were amongst the top two reasons um, for um, these tax policy changes. Um, but the public were also worried about what economists would refer to uh, as efficiency. 
Of course, it wasn't phrased like that in the survey, but people um, expressed a worry that um, a wealth tax might discourage investment uh, and job creation. So we need to take that um, concern seriously too. And then thirdly, um, the public want the tax system to be fair. Uh, by far and away the strongest um, sets of reasons that people gave uh, in favour of a wealth tax were these two um, concerns about the gap between the rich and poor and that that trend has been going in the wrong uh, direction. That doesn't mean to say that uh, respondents to the survey want some large active redistribution of wealth, but more that this could be a reflection of the, the, the notion or the premise that we're living in times that may necessitate um, whether we like it or not, an increase in tax and a question then about who should bear those um, costs. And then fourthly, uh, the public were really worried um, that any tax measures that we could do would be too easy to avoid. Uh, the, the, the strongest reason for disfavouring uh, a wealth tax was simply the scepticism that the wealthy wouldn't actually pay it. Um, people reported that wealthy will avoid by moving or finding some loopholes. And so we have thought really carefully uh, in our analysis of ways to make this tax robust so that uh, everyone pays the share that they are supposed to um, and making opportunities for avoidance and evasion um, as small as possible. And we set then a fifth test. Uh, this was not one that came from the public, but this is one that we um, have set ourselves, which is that it's not good enough that a tax should achieve these objectives, but it should also achieve them better than um, the alternatives. And so, uh, as Aaron will explain um, in a moment, um, that means that uh, we've considered the role and the strengths of a one-off wealth tax uh, against other likely uh, tax rises. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Andy. Uh, so I'll talk you through now uh, how a wealth tax might compare against those four objectives, as well as how it relates to other taxes that might be able to stand in its stead. So the first uh, test was how much revenue uh, could a wealth tax raise? You know, would it raise substantial revenue as the public would like it to? Um, so for this, we uh, kind of engage in uh, detailed modeling to uh, figure out the how much you could get from a wealth tax under different assumptions. Uh, we're fully transparent about what data we use and what our methods are. And so there's a separate report that we also put out today detailing all of the process we go through, uh, explaining exactly how we get to the numbers we get to. So for people who are kind of want to dig into the details and understand that, uh, that, will, that is all already online and you can look at exactly what we do. Uh, we broadly use uh, the two, the, the one big data set we have in the UK on wealth, the Wealth and Assets Survey, and combine that with uh, external data sources uh, to help us understand what's going on, particularly at the top of the wealth distribution. Um, but all of the details of that are available online. Um, and we think about having done this modeling, we think about not just how much money sort of, let's take how much wealth there is and multiply it by some tax rate. We have to take into account some other features uh, that are sometimes missed when you uh, see numbers online for how much people estimate uh, you can get from taxing wealth. The first is we need to take into account uh, all relevant behavioral responses, all the things that people might uh, be likely to do in the context of the type of tax we're looking at. Uh, and so in this case, uh, well, I'll, I'll talk you through what the available options are. But in this case, the kind of biggest issues will be non-compliance, or there are some behavioral issues also to think about, other kinds of real responses. Um, the second is we have to take into account administrative costs. Um, well, you know, any tax uh, in practice has 
costs to administer. And you know, some people argue that wealth taxes actually have higher administrative costs. In some senses, that's true. Uh, so we need to take into account how much money would you raise after the administrative costs to work out, you know, is it going to be worth doing? Um, so here's a little table uh, showing you some examples of uh, how much revenue you could raise from a one-off wealth tax. Now, again, it's important to say uh, we don't, we're not recommending any particular uh, threshold or particular uh, tax rate. And so different uh, thresholds above which the tax kicks in uh, will have different effects. So the way that the, a wealth tax works is you set some threshold, for example, half a million pounds. It's the lower of the yellow striped lines. Uh, and it means that for somebody who has uh, a net wealth, that is the value of all of their assets, less the value of you know, a mortgage, if they have a mortgage, any other debt, take that all off. Uh, if their house is jointly owned with a partner, for example, then only half of that value of that house is included in their wealth. If you take the value of their wealth that exceeds half a million pounds, they pay a tax on the bit that's above that threshold. So uh, in this example, uh, 1%. And so if someone would pay 1% a year over a five-year period, uh, that would be raised 260 uh, billion pounds. You see it's 262 billion pounds of revenue that's raised. Uh, but we also show you what the administrative costs are. There's about 2 billion pounds of admin cost to government. So it's not free. Um, it's about 1%, uh, a bit less than 1% administrative cost, which is kind of comparable to uh, other taxes that we raise. So uh, self-assessment income is about 2p uh, for every uh, pound that you raise. Uh, personal income tax uh, through PYE is about a bit less than one pence per uh, pound you raise. So it's comparable to that. And so that's how much money you could raise from a threshold of 500,000 pounds, tax rate of 1%. Uh, if instead you had a higher threshold, so fewer people were covered by the tax, uh, you could say raise that threshold to 2 million as another example. Uh, and now you raise sort of only uh, 80 billion pounds. But I'll show you these numbers are, are kind of large in the sense of how much money uh, we often think about raising uh, from taxes. Uh, but you'd raise uh, 80 billion pounds uh, over a five year period. Uh, and, you know, you can see from that taxpayers column, you, you massively reduce if you go up uh, as, you, as you raise the threshold, the number of taxpayers that are included. At half a million pounds, you're including about 17%, uh, so one in six of all taxpayers. Up at two million pounds, you're including just the top 1% uh, of people by wealth. Um, but as I said, these there are you know lots of options, lots of thresholds you could pick. Other rates you could pick here on this table, just for ease, I've shown you just the 1% rate. Um, and so we uh, also launched this morning a, a tax simulator that lets you design your own wealth tax. Uh, so if you go to www.ukwealth.tax, click in the top right, the tax simulator button, You'll see a page like this, uh, which will show you, uh, you know, what the tax rate is. Uh, you, you set the tax rate at different thresholds uh, and you'll get some uh, kind of curve of how much the average tax is that's paid by someone at any given level of wealth and how much revenue that, uh, you're getting from this tax. So you can design it yourself and think about how you would like to raise money for whatever amount of money you think you'd like to raise. So how does, you know, 260 billion pounds, think of that as roughly, say, 50 billion pounds per year. Uh, over five years, what are the alternatives that one could have if one wanted to raise that kind of money? I and mean, again, you know, we're not saying that that's the right amount of money to raise. If you have a lower target in mind, uh, you could scale both the numbers in the earlier table uh, and the numbers here down to whatever you think is the right amount of money to raise. Um, but let's just think about what the alternatives are that would raise, say, 50 billion pounds a year for that five-year period. Uh, alternatives would be you know, increasing just the basic rate of uh, income tax from 20% to 29%. Uh, you could instead not want to only have it on the basic rate, but to increase all uh, tax rates. Uh, in that case, uh, you'd be raising uh, all tax rates by 6p, so basic rate, higher rates, and additional rates. 
Um, or you could think, let's not do anything on income tax. Let's go to uh, tax on spending instead. Let's focus on VAT. Uh, and then what you'd be doing is uh, increasing all rates of VAT by uh, about 6p. So we're raising the main rate of VAT from uh, 20% to 26%. Uh, so these are all very large uh, increases as alternatives. And I think it's just important to have uh, in mind this sort of sense of scale, uh, to know, you know what are the alternatives uh, that are out there and what sort of scale of increase you would need to have uh, in order to raise the same kind of money. So that was the first uh, thing that we were comparing uh, against objectives set by the public. We were thinking about how much revenue could be raised and what would be the alternatives sort of altogether. Um, the other thing that's nice about a one-off wealth tax is that it's economically efficient. Uh, if you were to raise any of those alternatives that I just uh, described to you, say you wanted to uh, go for an increase in income tax rates instead, uh, we know that increasing income taxes will distort future decisions. It will make you less inclined to uh, work because the return from working has gone down. And so people will just be less inclined uh, to engage in that kind of behavior. Unlike that, a one-off wealth tax does not distort your future decisions. The one-off liability for the wealth tax, uh, as Andy described, is fixed on the day that the, the tax is announced. And it's then, in some sense, you know, whatever you want to do in the future, any saving you want to do, any working you want to do, uh, those behaviors won't affect what your tax liability is. Uh, and so because we're not distorting those decisions, uh, you know, as economists, we think of that as uh, an efficient tax. It's not uh, making you less inclined to do things you would like to do uh, just because the tax is there. That doesn't mean the tax has no effect. There's clearly a kind of wealth effect or income effect uh, in the sense that, you know, people have less money and they, if, if they've been taxed uh, based on their wealth in some sense, uh, then they have less money in their pockets that they can spend on other things. But it's important to recognize that applies to all taxes. You know, it's true that if you raise say 50 billion pounds a year, and that's 50 billion pounds you've moved from uh, the private sector of the economy, from individuals, over to the public sector. Uh, but that's also true that if, you, if your alternative was to uh, get 50 billion pounds from VAT, you'd also be moving 50 billion pounds uh, from the private sector to the public sector, or if you did that on income tax rates. Um, so whatever your alternative is, just you know, having, a, having decided that's the revenue you want to get, and as, as we said, we're not deciding that, um, but for however much money uh, a government decides it wants to raise, uh, that effect will be there no matter what you do. Uh, and finally, uh, it's important to, uh, yeah, so it's, so it's important to recognize that, you know, I gave you some specific examples of uh, taxes, but all recurring taxes, whether you think about it as income tax, VAT, if you were to move over to corporation tax or any other recurring tax, they're all going to be uh, less efficient than having this kind of one-off uh, tax. The third criteria that, that we kind of got from the public was some idea of fairness. And so there's kind of two ways to, to think about fairness here. So the first is, uh, you know, we're, we've had this, we are in this major crisis. I mean, the health crisis is now uh, hopefully uh, going to be easing over the coming months as, we, as the first vaccines uh, started to be given. Uh, but the, the economic crisis is still sort of not over. Again, we're not taking a stand on how uh, much money is needed to be raised uh, to kind of deal with that. But to the extent that there is a crisis and someone is, anyone is thinking about raising uh, taxes uh, as a way of trying to pay for the crisis, uh, the question is then, which tax or taxes do you want to raise? Wealth, in that sense, is a good uh, thing to target as a way of just defining what the, the tax base should be, because it's a natural measure of the current ability to pay. You know, wealth provides security, it provides opportunities for people. Uh, it's clearly the natural thing that you can convert into the ability to uh, buy stuff. If I have uh, savings or if I borrow against my house, I have the ability to purchase things with it. Uh, so in that sense, it is uh, very directly a measure of ability to pay. And in that sense, we might think that if we're trying to sort of 
share out the cost uh, of uh, the crisis for how much money needs raising, uh, a sensible way to share that out would be to think about people's ability to pay. It's also worth uh, thinking about the fact that these alternative taxes, say if you were to, to raise the basic rate of income tax, um, what that will imply is uh, a particular distributional effect of the uh, taxes that you're raising. It will fall more heavily on people with low incomes, relatively speaking, than say something like a, a one-off wealth tax would do. Our recommendations here are not about uh, sort of doing redistribution per se. You know, there, one could also design a one-off wealth tax that was uh, deliberately uh, particularly progressive and has very heavy rates at the top. Uh, if, if the goal was specifically to try and do redistribution. But the point here is that you don't have to have that goal in mind to think a one-off wealth tax is a sensible thing to do. It's really a matter of who can afford to contribute the most. Uh, that's particularly relevant in this context um, because we know that to keep the economy on life support, what's happened is that uh, interest rates have had to fall. They've had to be moved very low and they're likely to stay low for a long time. Uh, we know that when interest rates are very low, that tends to uh, increase asset prices. We saw that after the financial crisis as well. And that benefits people who have assets. So the sense in which you could also think about this as uh, kind of capturing some of the value of that increase uh, in asset prices uh, that has that's taken place because we've done something for macroeconomic reasons, re reducing interest rates to allow uh, you know, companies and individuals to borrow, that has also at the same time had uh, distributional effects by uh, giving uh, gains towards the people uh, who have uh, you know, increases in wealth towards the people who have assets. There's also an intergenerational uh, aspect to uh, what a one-off wealth tax would do. We know that uh, wealth is held more uh, heavily among people with uh, higher, uh, among older people. And so a one-off wealth tax would fall more heavily on them. Uh, and if there are also going to be tax rises on work at some point, which are obviously not going to fall as much on, uh, well, it's not going to fall on people who are retired and therefore not as much on older generations, a one-off wealth tax might be a natural way to sort of balance the two things and have, uh, you know, if, if income tax rises are coming further down the line, a uh, one way to, uh, get something also from you know, to balance the burden across people who've also on the older side uh, would be to have a one-off wealth tax at the same time. So there's a few different reasons. Uh, different people prefer, you know, think of different ones of these as being more or less important. There are a few different reasons why one can think about uh, a one-off wealth tax as being uh, good for thinking about uh, a fairness. That doesn't mean that uh, there are still people who uh, come to us and tell us, oh, it's unfair for uh, some particular reason. Uh, some people will say it's punishing the wealthy. Now, again, uh, it's in no sense uh, focusing on, you know, where your wealth comes from or, or taxing people based on whether their wealth is sort of deserved. Uh, in some case, for some people, that's actually one of the downsides of a one-off wealth tax. But one-off wealth tax is just saying, you know, for whoever happens to have wealth at some point in time, who has that ability to pay, they're the set of people who uh, would therefore be being taxed. But it's not, it's really not about punishment. Uh, and again, it, the, the design of the tax could be more or less progressive depending on what uh, the, you know, the public or politicians want. Um, it's also not, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't require uh, confiscation of property. This is partly a hit list of uh, questions we've had on Twitter today. Uh, but it, it doesn't require, you know, saying we're taxing you on your house doesn't mean we're, that, you know, it doesn't mean the government is taking away your house. It means that they're using the value of your house and your pension and your savings to figure out, you know, in principle, what's your ability to pay. And then, you know, whether you pay it out of savings, whether you pay it out of borrowing, whether you pay out of other income you have at the moment, uh, there are various ways in which people can then uh, choose to pay it but it's not actually requiring you know, the handing over of anyone's keys. Uh, and to the extent there are any people who, and there clearly will be some, and we'll talk more about it, uh, who uh, are liquidity constrained, meaning they don't have uh, that much income, sort of asset rich, cash poor, uh, as, as uh, they're often termed. Uh, we have a, a, a number of solutions for that uh, issue that Emma will touch on in a minute. Uh, and finally, 
there's a there's kind of a question you know is uh, is a well one-off wealth tax will that be retrospective is it unfair because it's somehow uh taxing people and stuff they would have the, the money they have they would have behaved differently uh, if they'd known it was coming uh, i mean it's, it's clearly true uh, that it's people might have wanted to have behaved differently but it's also true in lots of other taxes i mean reforms to capital gains tax take place you know roughly every 10 years there may be a reform coming uh, and clearly and there, there already have been some changes in the last budget actually uh, these kinds of changes again people would have chosen to behave differently potentially if they knew that those uh, gains were going the taxation of those gains was going to change uh, so a number of tax changes in, you know in practice are based on decisions we've made in the past I think you know as the world changes and people realize that tax rates need to be different it just happens to be the case that one needs to um, change taxes and it will have effects on things people have done in the past but it's not it's not a special property of a one-off wealth tax uh, we go into all of these in more details in our report um, but I think that's all I'll say on it, uh, for now then very finally uh, would the wealthy uh, avoid it so this is the kind of fourth uh, test we had is in the public in some sense wary of taxes where they think the wealthy are just not going to end up having to pay anything and therefore in the end it falls on the upper middle classes but the you know the merely affluent rather than the very wealthy our recommended design is very difficult to avoid and it's very difficult to avoid because liability for the uh, tax is fixed at the announcement date so you know you can imagine a chancellor standing up at some point and saying this is the date on which i'm announcing a wealth tax uh, and you know it's based on your wealth this morning uh, and so it's uh, kind of too late to do anything to avoid if you haven't anticipated that it was coming there is some risk that you know some people will anticipate it you know not least the publication of our report might make some people think about it um but it's still very difficult to avoid again emma will touch on the kind of details of how this is going to work um but you can shut down margins like people wanting to uh, emigrate what you know even at this point or shifting assets around um those kinds of things uh, can actually be shut down because it's, it's about when you set the reference date and it's about for in the context of emigration it's really about when you are considered to be tax resident for purposes of wealth tax. And since you anyway want it not to be uh, taxing necessarily somebody who happens to just be passing through the country, uh, you do need to have a, have a system that determines tax residents that would automatically look at how long someone's been uh, in the country. People could uh, avoid by giving away assets. If, that's, uh, some, if, they, you know, if they predict that this is coming and they decide they want to give away assets, if they make a genuine gift, not something that's revocable, but they make a genuine gift, then yeah, they genuinely have reduced their wealth. That's a choice they want to make. Um, but if they choose to reduce their wealth uh, to give money uh, to somebody else, then that is true. That's, that's, that's one of the dimensions in which one could avoid. But it is, you know, in terms of the cost to them, they will obviously lose more wealth by giving away uh, a large chunk of it than having to pay uh, some smaller chunk of it uh, over in uh, wealth tax. So that's avoidance. There's also a worry about evasion. You know, what if people uh, can't do anything legal, but they try and find some other solution? There has been major progress in tackling uh, issues of evasion over the past decade. Um, there's been, uh, since the financial crisis, the, the uh, growth of automatic exchange of information between countries. That means that uh, HMRC in the UK uh, gets information from other tax authorities about what uh, money people have abroad. Uh, there's also uh, third party reporting within the UK. So banks, the land registry, companies house, uh, pass information to HMRC that they can use to uh, cross check uh, what people uh, report. So there's a lot of uh, things that HMRC can already do. There will uh, sort of inevitably, as with any tax, uh, be some uh, non-compliance. We see that, you know, with inheritance tax, about 9% uh, is, uh, is measured to be uh, measured to be about 9% non-compliance. Uh, with self-assessment income tax, it's about 12%. Uh, and so we, you know, the, the revenue figures I showed you earlier, uh, all are taking into account uh, the idea that there'll be about 10% uh, of this kind of non-compliance uh, 
and uh, some small amounts of, of avoidance of the kinds I described earlier. Uh, but even after that, we're still raising uh, these large sums of money. So uh, at that point, I'll hand over to Emma to talk more about uh, who is taxed and the other design issues in this context. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. I should stress, I'm going to look at some issues of design. And in this context, I'm only going to look at the one-off wealth tax payable over a period that we suggest is five years and not in any uh, shape or form. None of this seminar is about an annual wealth tax, which, which we're not recommending. So in the context of a one-off wealth tax, who is taxed? Um, and when a wealth tax was last considered in the UK in 1974, the government green paper concluded that the natural unit of the taxation should be the family. So the married couple in that at that time and certainly you could have the married couple being taxed as a single household or you could tax each person on an individual basis internationally different options are followed switzerland and norway accumulate the wealth aggregate the wealth of the household and double the exempt threshold uh, and tax them all as one uh, spain has separate thresholds for each member of the family uh, with separate assessments we discuss these options in the paper, and certainly if the tax unit is chosen to be couples, then there would be a strong case, I think, for assessing cohabitees as well as spouses and civil partners, um, because otherwise it would be quite unfair if someone married and then was better or worse off uh, just, because, just before an annual, uh, just before a one-off wealth tax was announced. But this leads to problems of definition and enforcement. Who's to say um, who is a cohabitee? And certainly the benefit system has not found these easy questions to address. So um, in the end, we opt for an individual basis, but equally we accept it could operate unfairly for a couple who happen just on that one-off assessment date that's announced um, to own property in perhaps one person's name, even though they regard it as a joint asset. And that would be particularly the case if the tax was levied at a high, um, over a high threshold with a very progressive rate. So we've recommended that while a one-off wealth tax is assessed on an individual basis, it would be feasible to allow couples to choose or elect to be taxed together if they preferred. So they could elect into joint assessment. Now, the next question is um, what tax practitioners sometimes say is territoriality. Um, and I've seen a lot of uh, sort of comments on this. So, first of all, all residents in the UK will pay a one-off wealth tax on their worldwide wealth. And non-residents will pay, we propose, will pay a one-off tax principally on their UK real estate land. Domicile is rejected as a connecting factor. And anyone who wants to know why can look at one of the appendices in the one of the evidence papers. But the common question I've seen today is, well, um, all the wealthy will leave. They won't pay. You won't get any money from this or that it will deter people from coming. So looking at those two questions, first of all, it could well be true that on an annual wealth tax, the wealthy might well leave. Um, but a one-off tax can be structured with what we call a backwards-looking tail. And so we've suggested that those who are resident in the last four out of the seven years prior to the year of announcement, and you could op op obviously operate a number of different options here, will be subject to a worldwide one-off wealth tax. So even if they've left by the date of announcement, um, they could still be subject to the tax if they've been in the UK for a long period before. And as I say, the four in seven is just a suggestion uh, based on other legislation that we already have in the CGT legislation. We, we, could, we could operate different models. Equally, 
um, we don't want to put people off coming. So those who have only been UK resident for a very short time before the announcement of the one-off wealth tax wouldn't pay on their full worldwide wealth. So um, that, that is who is taxed. Now going on to the next slide, the case for taxing all assets. And we are very clear in the report, and I would say this is one thing we have agreed on. We haven't agreed on everything all the time, um, but we have agreed on this, that there should be a comprehensive tax base. And there are really two reasons for this. One is fairness um, and one is uh, revenue. So the fairness argument, first of all, dealing with horizontal equity, essentially that people in similar positions with the same wealth or taxable capacity should be taxed in the same way. And this is because if two people with the same ability to pay end up paying different tax bills just because they happen to hold their wealth in different forms at the date of the announcement, this would feel very unfair. So just to take two simple examples, you've got Jack who chooses to live in a modest house and invest in the stock market versus Jill who prefers a nicer house and has no other savings. It would be rather unfair to say, for example, that Jill pays no wealth tax because she's got a large house and Jack has to pay the wealth tax because some of his wealth is in the stock market and it would be equally unfair in reverse. Looking at another option, because there's been a lot of um, discussion about pensions, suppose you've got Jane who invests all her retirement savings um, and as she say, goes along in her career, she saves into her private business versus John who works in the civil service with a final salary pension. Again, it would be quite unfair if one of them was subject to a wealth tax um, and the other one was exempt. And no doubt both of them could present quite good cases uh, for um, why they each of them should be exempt. But in the end, we say that all wealth should be in the tax base, in the taxable base. Going on to vertical um, fairness, basically, um, people of different levels of wealth we have seen um, hold at different types of assets. And international experience and our own UK experience shows that if we have exemptions on particular assets, we do end up with um, some uh, odd results, not least in some cases a regressive uh, tax base. So, for example, inheritance tax, once, as the Office for Tax Simplification reported uh, last year, the, the rate of inheritance tax effectively goes down for larger estate, estates over 10 million because they are usually better able to access business and agricultural relief, which gets them 100 percent relief from inheritance tax. And obviously, it would be very unfair if you exempted, for example, all business and all farmland. And that meant that uh, people of modest wealth relatively were ending up paying um, all the one off wealth tax. So that's the fairness argument about taxing all assets. The, the pragmatic one is that we're going to lose revenue and a lot of revenue if we don't have a comprehensive tax base. And in the um, paper, we do various modelling of what happens when you exclude certain um, uh, assets. So, for example, and this is very much just by example, we're not recommending a threshold. At a threshold of 500,000 with, say, a flat rate, um, of 5% payable over five years. So that would be a million, remember, per household, because we're looking at 500,000 per individual. Exempting the main home would reduce revenue by nearly one third. And separately, exempting pensions would reduce the revenue by over half. Um, at a threshold of 5 million, exempting business assets would reduce revenue by 87%. 
So if the government wants to exclude ordinary wealth, it's probably better to do this by having a higher threshold um, below which you don't pay uh, the one-off wealth tax rather than exempting specific assets. You're likely to get to a both fairer result and uh, lose less revenue or at least lose less predictable revenue in that way. Now, um, how would you value assets? We, we've talked about having a comprehensive wealth tax base. Every asset is going to be valued. How do we do that? The first thing we say is that we have an open market value, and that is defined in legislation and case law already as the price which the property might reasonably be expected to fetch if sold in the open market. So in other words, it's a Rolls-Royce approach. We reject discounts, exemptions and formulas. And the part of the reason for that is that we've already got that in the legislation. IHT, capital gains tax and inherit and income tax all operate on that basis to a great to a greater or lesser degree. And to come up with another design could be quite unhelpful and uncertain for taxpayers, as well as leave and lead to unfairness. In a one off wealth tax, you really want to get values right. You don't want to have a, a situation where someone finds that because they own a particular type of asset, it's subject to a discount. You're only going to be doing this once on one valuation date. It's never going to come again in, in someone's lifetime. So you do want to make sure that you get those values right. The challenge, and I, I don't underestimate the issues of valuing some of assets, which we'll come on to. The challenge is as much of anything as scale just the sheer number of valuations required. We do value for IHT and CGT and income tax, but we don't value on anything like the scale that would be required on a wealth tax basis. So going on to the next slide. Um, actually, sorry, just, just going back, I, I should say, when we're looking at scale, we solve this to some degree through economies of scale. So... Um, we suggest that the government um, should provide some institutional valuations uh, rather than putting the burden on taxpayers. And we do that by saying, for example, on houses, um, because the revenue can deliver economies of scale, the valuations office could do those values and then taxpayers um, could object if they want. We also look at banding. So under a banded system, the tax charge would depend on assigning the taxpayer to a range based on their total wealth rather than identifying a precise figure. There are pros and cons of this approach, but it would enable some people to say pretty definitely, well, I fall within that band, so I don't really need to go to all the trouble of getting valuations. But we do accept that there are some major differences in costs of valuation between different assets and actually suggests that such costs should be deductible against the taxable wealth reported. It's quite clear that savings, listed shares, and even your house will be a lot easier to value than farmland, commercial property. Um, and we accept that. So going on to some of those assets, financial assets, how do we value those? Well, one other option is to have reporting by financial institutions. They already do this in relation to income tax and gains. Um, and in ca cases of uh, uh, bonds. Um, so financial institutions could be required to provide a statement of the value of each individual's portfolio on the assessment date. Um, pensions, well, we've got two types, defined benefits and uh, defined contribution. Defined contribution, you get evaluation pretty easily and you tend to get that every year anyway. Defined benefits, you obviously don't have a standalone pot, so it's more difficult. There we've suggested that you value at the cash equivalent transfer value. And that is often done in divorces, 
if you wanted to transfer your pension to an alternative uh, plan in exchange for giving up your rights under an existing scheme, uh, the cash equivalent transfer value is a pretty standard valuation to use, and pension funds are well able to deal with that. The House, as I've said, we've suggested using the valuation office as the um, as, as pre-populating tax returns with the values, um, but the taxpayer would be able to substitute their own value if they got own value if they got a professional valuation. Businesses, this is the biggest challenge. Um, it would need professional valuers, um, and we suggest that in order to increase consistency and reduce cost, a valuation should be done at the company level once and then reported to the shareholders. So you don't have lots of different shareholders uh, presenting lots of different valuations. Um, so, so that aims to partly deal with that problem, but we don't underestimate the problem for businesses. Um, and what I would say is they do have, we, we would suggest that for the first few years, um, or for, while they're sorting out valuations, a provisional basis was adopted and you, you paid until the final valuations were agreed. And because we're only doing this once, we have the opportunity to do that properly. So one other issue that's come up a lot is liquidity problems. What about those who are asset rich and cash poor? And at a threshold of 500,000, around one in 14 taxpayers would be liquidity constrained. And we have a definition of that um, that we, I put on the slide there. There are three solutions. And um, the first one is that anyway, the standard payment period for a one-off wealth tax is not going to be that you, all ha you have to pay it in one year. The uh, period would be over five years. So whatever rate the government decided, that rate would be divided over five years. You could have longer periods, you could have shorter. There are pros and cons to each option that we discuss in the report. We also accept that particularly in um, pensions, you cannot pay the tax because you don't actually have access to the pot to pay it until you retire. And therefore, you will have the option to defer any tax on pensions until the state retirement age or until you crystallise your pension pot. At that point, the tax liability that was um, agreed will become due and can be paid. And most of those with significant pension wealth are already near retirement age anyway. So in a sense, there's not too much longer that you have to defer. There is also um, the problem of the granny in the big house, and, and there, those who, who have a low income and um, high value assets, how are they going to pay a one-off wealth tax? Well, there we suggest a statutory deferral scheme, and we don't suggest that that lasts for a maximum period. If you can show that you've got low income and low liquid assets, then you are allowed to defer payment beyond the five years. You're not exempted, but it can be deferred, for example, until sale of the house or until death. So um, going on to the conclusions, we don't make any recommendation on when a one-off wealth tax should be implemented. We've said that several times. It really does depend on the state of the economic recovery and indeed whether taxes should be raised at all. Some people may say we don't need to with low interest rates for many years and we can just rely on buoyant economic activity. Our point is that if the government decides to raise taxes, it should do so um, by raising one-off wealth taxes in preference to other taxes. It will be a better way of raising significant uh, revenue than increasing taxes on work or spending. And we also think, and this is important, that it would be harder to avoid than alternative ways of taxing the better off. 
Um, so it's an exceptional response to a specific crisis. We are not recommending it as a permanent feature of the uh, UK tax system. But we also say this does not remove the need for long-term reform to existing taxes on wealth, which we should do as well. And I think we can all agree that our current taxes are a mess. They're complex. They deter people from coming to the UK. The wealthy don't like them because they don't understand them. And they have to pay money to understand them. Um, and many people feel that they are very unfair. And I think if one thing that my fellow tax practitioners and academic colleagues can agree on is that, that the current system is not fit for purpose. And perhaps I can also finish by saying there is no perfect tax system anywhere in the world, but the UK tax code, I think, is particularly flawed, complex and inconsistent. And I would end by urging my fellow tax practitioners and academics to continue working together to improve the system. And hopefully this project will be a spur to do that. To do that. And if I can end by repeating the mantra that anyone who's worked on me on this project uh, knows I say repeatedly, let not the be best be the enemy of the good. We may not get the best or perfect tax system, but we can work on making the current system a lot better. Thank you very much. Well, thank, thank you to all three presenters. I think the message uh, that you, you have is, has come over really clearly and not surprisingly, the, 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 um, the still, there's lots of questions that, that have arisen. Um, I think if there's a dominant theme, in, in some ways it's about subliminally, I suppose, the politics of this. I mean, you've talked a lot about the sort of, um, somewhat about the economics of it, some, somewhat about the, um, uh, the, the legal aspects and the enforcement aspects. Um, but how this plays into politics is, is something that I think a lot of people have latched onto quite quickly. So let me give you a flavor of the concerns that have come over in the questions I've seen, seen already. I think one of the principal uh, concerns is that uh, how would you ever be able to convince the public that this was one-off? Um, having gone down this route, set up a certain amount of uh, administrative enforcement to do this, um, does it would it have much credibility at all with the public that you were just going to do this as a, as a one-off? Um, and, and sort of on the other end of that, then a lot of people will say, well, surely you should just be going for a, an annual wealth tax anyway. Um, and that's almost a coming full circle from the sort of can you commit to, to one-off? Maybe, you know, most people would think this is going to be the beginnings of an annual wealth tax unavoidably because once the government sort of tasted uh uh, the forbidden fruit, if you like, they'll they'll feast on it just as much as they like, um, and and I don't, those go right to the heart of the political economy, don't they? Of, of this, and I I know you haven't really stressed that in anything you said, but I I think most people listening in uh, would like to hear more about your thinking on that. Let me jump in then. Um, so it's a really important point. Uh, when we said at the start, you know, there are no behavioural responses. Uh, and it's too late to to kind of do avoidance because it's all happened. That's also partly predicated on the idea you're not all now going to be responding on the assumption that this kind of tax will continue. Uh, I think, you know, that, that that there's two things to say about that. One, which uh, Andy touched on already, is, you know, being clear what the kind of context is, what the purpose is, that this is really, you know, I don't think anyone can say that 2020 is just another year where we're just thinking about taxes like we might be in any other year. It really is quite a different time. And we've, we've seen all of the stats from, the Office for Budget Responsibility and whoever else saying, you know, worst performance of 300 years for the economy uh, and so on. And so I think it, it's clearly an exceptional time. Uh, the other thing is to say is that other countries have at particular, in particular crises, also used one-off taxes. 
So after the Second World War, which again is a very uh, unusual context, people have really been talking about the UK as uh, thinking out, you know, is this war debt? Is this, it should be thinking about this as the, the follow-up to a war. Um, in, in After the Second World War, France and Germany, uh, both among other countries, uh, and Japan also had uh, one-off wealth taxes. After the financial crisis, Ireland and Iceland, which were both badly hit by that, had temporary taxes. Uh, in all those cases, those taxes have since gone away. Uh, they also don't seem to have, uh, you know, the the Irish example was on uh, it was a temporary tax on pensions, but it doesn't seem to have stopped people uh, saving in their pensions, continuing to use pensions. So I think being very clear with people uh, does make it possible to to you know uh, explain why this is an unusual thing to do and uh, that it's a special context. In terms of whether you could just switch over and say, oh, we've done it now, let's just make it a, a regular thing. I think uh, I didn't kind of spend a lot of time on it, but I showed the administrative costs of raising this money and in the context of an and uh, one of wealth tax, they're quite small. But if you're thinking about the kind of level of tax you'd be raising from people if you were doing uh, an annual wealth tax, it just wouldn't be the same scale. You obviously wouldn't be wanting to try to have that kind of scale uh, in, in an, on an annual basis. And then the administrative issues do become a lot larger. It's, it's just much harder to do. I mean, even in the context of repaying this over five years, we were still only assessing the tax once, having to engage in all the valuation costs once. Doing that every single year is actually quite expensive. And so I think the other thing is it's just it's actually is harder to implement uh, an annual wealth tax. Um, and we, you know, as we say in our report, in as, as Emma said, there's a lot of uh, problems with the current capital the system for taxing uh, capital in the UK. Uh, we all strongly feel that if there's going to be the political capital to try to work on uh, doing something about taxation of capital in the UK, the place to start is fixing existing problems that we know about that have been written about by many people before us and who we uh, cite in our report. Uh, rather than trying to embark on a new uh, tax. We think the only uh, problem for which an annual tax uh, is potentially a solution that couldn't be solved with those other taxes is for the people who specifically have a goal in mind that what they'd like to do is not just to raise more money from people with wealth, but specifically to reduce the concentration of wealth at the top. If that's if that's your specific goal, I think your only option uh, is something like an annual wealth tax with all of the uh, difficulties that will come with it. Um, but if what you want is mainly something that is Let's raise some more money from wealth. Uh, you can do that by fixing existing problems, and that's definitely the better place to start. Uh, anyone else want want to come in? Um, I, I suppose I ought to say that I think an, a, an annual wealth tax really does present some pretty significant issues for taxpayers in terms of valuation issues for them, but also in terms of behavioural response. Uh, I mean, a one-off wealth tax, one of the attractions of it is that it is pretty difficult to avoid. Um, whilst when we're talking about designing an annual wealth tax, we have to think of a lot more anti-avoidance devices and that starts getting very complicated. And what we'll end up with, I fear, is another flawed tax in addition to the flawed tax we have on inheritance tax um, and, and the way we tax wealthy people at the moment. I really agree with Aaron, it is better to fix the existing system and we ought to try and do that. Switzerland does have a quite successful annual wealth tax, but it does not have... Um, actually capital gains tax or inheritance tax of any serious note. So most countries that do have an annual wealth tax, like Norway, Switzerland, that work better, don't have inheritance tax. So just coming on that, what, what, what would happen if asset price, so you're doing it over a five-year window, suppose asset prices change very significantly during the five-year window, you'd still, am I right in thinking, base your tax on asset prices at the beginning of the window, but you could see that would begin to 
it sort of goes a little bit to the time horizon. I mean, the annual wealth tax is assessed on the value of our assets at that date, but people would still be paying the tax at the end of your five-year window on what could conceivably be a much lower level of wealth than they had at the beginning of the window. Have, have, have you thought about yeah. that or you just is your view you're just going to fix this in stone regardless of uh, what we, happens to asset we, prices? We do discuss that uh, exact um, concern in the report. Um, and it is, of course, a concern. Uh, I'm not sure um, that the most likely scenario over the next five years is that asset prices will go down across the board. As Aaron said, there's probably economic reasons to think that the most likely trend in asset prices overall will be upwards as a result of um, low interest rates. But for particular individuals, it could obviously be the case that they're assessed uh, on the initial assessment date and then something catastrophically bad happens to them that their their business fails or their property somehow otherwise is destroyed or something and um, we do we do think of that as a worry um, on the one hand as you point out it's it's in the nature of a one-off wealth tax that you don't do reassessments across the board if you feel that you want to account um, subtly for every change in wealth year on year, then what you're really asking for is an annual wealth tax with all those different properties that we um, discussed. But we think that there is scope and we discuss in the report um, the option for a very limited, narrowly circumscribed relief where someone's individual wealth kind of falls drastically after the assessment date for reasons beyond their um, control. So we're not thinking here of circumstances where people choose um, to spend down their wealth or um, they find ways to um, give away or give away their wealth or use debt to reduce their wealth. We want to exclude all those circumstances, but we agreed in the end that um, there is scope for a limited relief that could cater for those real hardship cases um, that could arise. We do have precedent for this, by the way, in inheritance tax, because obviously people die and then their assets fall in value and, and there is precedent there. So you could adopt something similar to that. But I think if you go much further than that, you do open the door to avoidance because obviously the whole basis of a one-off wealth tax is it's the valuation on the date immediately prior to the announcement. If you start then saying, well, you can revalue it at a later date, if you've somehow managed to devalue it, then obviously that that is a problem. In most cases, and in fact, this was a lesson in Germany, which introduced a one-off wealth tax in the 1950s, assets went up in value um, and the one-off wealth tax, which in fact in that, that time was 50% over 30 years, uh, became increasingly um, uh, sort of lower, lower effectiveness because obviously it was worthless. Okay, so one, one question that came up a couple of times uh, that I just want to push you on is what are you actually, are you actually recommending this? Um, people people seem a bit confused as to whether or not you're you're just sort of analysing alternatives or you're actually producing a recommendation. And if you're not, so just to make sure you don't uh, you answer the question, if you're not, why are you not making a recommendation? So the the straight answer to that question is it's a conditional recommendation, and the condition is that the government's decided that it's going to raise taxes. So we're not saying you should do this tomorrow. We're not even saying you should do it next year or in five years. We're saying at the point at which a government has decided for whatever reasons that it has, that it is going to raise taxes, at that point it has a choice. Uh, and the usual way that a government exercises that choice is to say, well, if you want to raise lots of money, you're going to have to raise taxes on income, VAT, national insurance contributions. That's the you know, sad, sad face. That's the only way that we can do this and everyone will have to pay. And what we're saying is at that point, actually, we disagree 
that those are the only options. And we're saying the government does have a choice because it could raise this money um, from a one-off tax on wealth. Okay, and if one takes that view, I think, again, there seems to be a bit of confusion as to whether you're predominantly persuaded by the inequality argument. So if, if, if it's about inequality, then you would be driven towards the annual wealth tax, I suspect, with all, all of its difficulties, versus you need to raise tax revenue in a hurry, and this is the easiest way to do it. Um, again, on the balance of those two arguments, which one is the one that's really driving you? Well, I, I think it is definitely, um, it's a combination of needing to raise revenue, but to do it in a, um, in a fair way. Uh, it's certainly not the case that a one-off wealth tax is the easiest way to raise even 50 billion a year. The easiest way is just with a stroke of a pen to increase the basic rate of income tax. And that is partly why that's what governments often reach for. Um, so one-off wealth tax is not the easiest, but it is the way that you can raise a large amount of revenue and do it in a way um, that those who can afford to pay, um, pay more. So that is then to bring in um, that distributive element, undoubtedly. Okay. And then a few, a few questions about the, the landscape in which it's landing tax-wise. And Emma finished quite rightly, in my view, uh, pointing out that we, we don't start from anything approximating an optimal tax system. So this lands in the middle of a pre-existing set, set of taxes. And, and, and quite rightly, the question is raised, you know, many people are already paid um, some forms of inheritance tax. They pay capital gains tax. They're um, they're being taxed on by, with council tax on the somewhat on the value of their property, although, as we all know, council tax doesn't do a particularly good job at capturing the value of property. But, but um, why not just reform all of those taxes uh, and have a, a better long-term solution to capturing wealth through existing taxes rather than introducing an existing, uh, sorry, a new tax uh, and, and isn't this just delaying the date at which we would have the hardest conversation, which is the one I think Emma alluded to, of sorting out our tax system? And this might just sort of delay that conversation rather than actually support it, because we're not reforming any of the, any of the really problematic taxes. So, for example, someone points out in, in their question, you know, if we're, going to, if we're going to go to the trouble to value people's wealth, well, why not actually have that revaluation of some kind of council tax system that that would facilitate? Why then go back to a system of taxation that pretty much anyone who looks at it thinks is well past its sell-by date? So I don't know, Emma, you raised the question, you know, the tax system is in a mess as your sort of final flourish. So how do you see this playing into the wider debate about tax reform and not really paying attention to some of the things that everybody knows or, or who's, who's debated this thinks already should, should be reformed? Well, I, I think reform, taxes on capital and wealth are very difficult and we're not the only country that finds it very difficult. So we're, we're sort of in good company in that. Um, I think one of the problems we face in this country is that we don't actually know that much about the really wealthy. We don't have very good data, particularly over wealth of 10 million. So um, this, if nothing else, would give us a lot better data. And if you've got better data, you can plan your policy a bit better. And certainly, you know, that might be an option if you have valuations that you could then look at council tax. If you're doing it for that, you might then think, well, why not do it for council tax? I think the problem 
um, this is sort of a bit like the best and the good, the best being the enemy of the good. People always say, oh, well, you can't have a one-off wealth tax because what we should be doing is reforming existing taxes. And then you suggest options for reforming of existing taxes, and they're not quite right. So nothing ever happens. The one-off wealth tax is an exceptional response to an exceptional situation if you need to raise taxes. I do not think annual taxes are a good way forward because I think it will just add another complexity to the mix. And the problem with it is that if we fail on an annual wealth tax, then everybody will give up taxing the wealthy at all. You know, we just will throw in the towel. And indeed, some countries have done that. But if we want to think about it, um, I, I, I think this project has enabled practitioners and academics to work together and there's more to be done. And we can talk for a long time about reform. And I'm not sure that even all three of us would agree on the types of reform that we would recommend. We'd have to work that through in the same way we've done on this project. But I, I don't think it's impossible to get to a better capital tax system than we have at the moment. I mean, I personally think that if you want to tax wealthy people, you keep it simple and you keep it low and then you will get some money. The problem is that our IHT rate is 40 percent with lots and lots of complexity. Uh, and that does not make for a very good system. Thanks. Um, so there have been quite a few questions around trusts okay. and how they figure <laughs> in relation to all of this. I know, I know that is, is, is both conceptual and a more technical issue. So I don't know who wants to deal with that, whether again, it, it falls to our legal experts or whether Aaron, you want to come in on that? Uh, uh, who would like to respond? Trusts and royals are definitely all over. Okay, well, trusts I was forbidden to talk about because if I talk about trusts, I can go on all day. Um, anyone who's interested in the taxation of trusts, and we do look at it slightly differently. If you were doing it on an annual wealth tax, I think you'd have to do it slightly differently from the way you would do a one-off wealth tax. Um, there is an appendix that gives quite a lot of detail on all this. Essentially, for a one-off wealth tax, where the settlor is resident um, in the year of the, in, in the date of the announcement, so in effect as wealth tax resident, the trust will be in the mix um, for uh, paying wealth tax, um, but the settler wouldn't necessarily be liable. The, the wealth tax could be payable out of the trust fund. But there are a variety of options because obviously you've got lots of trusts where the settler's dead, but you've got some beneficiaries here, and we discuss all that in the uh, appendix. I'm sure if I started this, um, Andy and Aaron would get very cross with me because I go on too long. And the other, uh, Andy, do you want to come in on that? No, no, I think that's um, that's an, probably an appropriate level of detail for this uh, for this discussion. But for the aficionados, there is uh, quite a long appendix to the paper in which we discuss that in detail. Um, so there are another set of questions around the impact of this on on pensions. That uh, you know, you would in effect be lowering people's future incomes because they're paying out of their pension wealth. So. It, it is a wealth tax in the way you're describing it, but it has sort of implications and, and people who've been saving in anticipation of a particular target retirement income would therefore uh, have their, their life cycle plans potentially me um, messed up by, by this. Um, and it sort of goes to the, the sort of one-off question because one of the arguments that's frequently made about um, unannounced taxes are that, you know, people have, have made lifetime plans based on what they thought the tax system was, and suddenly that's turned around. And I suppose that issue particularly applies to taxing pension wealth. 
So do you have any reaction uh, to that concern? Yeah, so, um, well, I think the, the most direct comparison just on your, on your last point about people's expectations, uh, we talked about alternatives in terms of raising income tax or um, national insurance contributions. Of course, if we decided, which is not an implausible option, the government decided to add national insurance contributions um, to um, pensions in payment, which was one of the Merley's review recommendations and uh, has been quite heavily canvassed. That, of course, as well, you could say, well, uh, if I'd known that um, national insurance contributions are going to be paid when I took out my pension, I would have saved more in the first place. And the complicated reality with our tax system is that even tax changes which are formally prospective, so only applying from this date, of course, always risk um, people saying, well, had I known, I would have done something different. And so we don't think that a wealth tax um, is a special um, case like that. Uh, and just the other point um, about turning this into a tax on um, future income, I think the critical difference is that this is not then assessed based only on how much um, pension wealth you have, but the, the amount of tax that you would end up paying depends on adding up the amount of pension wealth that you have with all of your other wealth um, on the date. So it is quite different from, um, from taxing the um, pension income stream only um, in the future in terms of the way you calculate the liability. Okay, um, thanks. I, I, either Aaron or Emma want, want to come in on that. If not, I'll, I'll get to the, uh, to the next question. Um, so the, again, questions around the impact on business assets. So if somebody owns a business and most of their wealth is tied up in their business, uh, maybe, I don't know whether that's in your calculation it's not exactly the same as uh, asset-rich, um, cash-poor people. It, it could have a serious impact on business development for people who are holding assets in businesses. Uh, and given the difficulty in securing finance for business expansion, um, wouldn't this have a, an impact on, on the economy uh, that could be quite severe, particularly for growing businesses where it, you know that you, you probably want from a social point of view to let those businesses get on and grow but instead you'd be taking uh, effectively taking value out of them by by that being paid in the form of a wealth tax and yeah, any so responses me, to that let me take that one i think that, that picks up on a quite a few different points uh, that we sort of touched on already but it's sort of a nice example to, to look at uh, so i think the first thing is yes we we, we count uh, when, we, when we're looking at who is liquidity constrained we look at it based on we can measure what people's incomes are in the data we can measure what wealth they have including their business wealth and so if you have a lot of business wealth relative to the income you have, then we can th we think of that as somebody who is liquidity constrained. Um, that, of course, you know, in some cases, if it's a private business, it's, it's hard to know, you know, what could they have been taking out of their business versus what they chose to take out of their business. But we see what they take out, what they're choosing to take out. And on that basis, would classify them as liquidity constrained. How should we think about that? There's two, two different issues there. One is, uh, what do you do about the person who's liquidity constrained? As Emma said already, um, we have a sort of a number of solutions uh, in this process. Uh, in this context, you know, assuming that the five-year payment period wasn't enough, the, the main solution for that person would be that, based on what their income is and what their wealth is, uh, they'd end up essentially working out a payment plan with HMRC that would involve them paying over a longer number of years, a lower level per year, uh, until that uh, tax is paid. Um, so that's that's sort of the liquidity answer. In terms of what does it mean for their business growing, and sort of you know, is is it a terrible thing to be taxing the business? I mean. Of kind of as with all taxes, it, you know, if you want to raise however much money it is we're raising, certainly having this tax will be a tax on the, the person who has a, has business wealth and they'll have less money to have for their business. But the alternative might be 
Well, well instead we'll raise income taxes and that'll make it more expensive for that same person to hire people to work in that business or we'll raise VAT and that will discourage people from uh, you know spend, being able to spend as much at that person's business. So I think in a sense, it's really about what's the comparison. If you were saying, well, we can either have a wealth tax or we can have no tax, you know, clearly having the wealth tax is going to mean that people have less money and that's going to be bad for that person's business. It's not as obvious when you say, well, the alternative is to raise some other tax, that the other taxes are going to be better for them. I mean, the other taxes are also not only going, you know, an income tax is not only going to make it more expensive for them to hire somebody, but it makes the people they're hiring, you know, less inclined in general to want to uh, engage in the work because they're going to have less to take home. And so it has that additional distortive effect as well as just raising the cost of hiring people. I should add that, you know, that is one of the problems where we see on an annual wealth tax in um, other countries that on businesses, it is very difficult to keep on paying uh, a wealth tax every year. And you end up with all sorts of compromises, either exemption of businesses or linking it to income, which put, is prone to manipulation. And so that you know, is another problem about the annual wealth tax, whilst the one off over uh, five years, payable over five years or longer if necessary, has a very different complexion, I think, on that. Okay. Um, again, questions around um, this, this sort of exceptional moment you've described. Would, would the 2008 financial crisis have been exceptional enough for this to have been done then? In which case, it, does, it doesn't look like quite a once-in-a-generation thing anymore. How would you know when you're an exceptional moment? Uh, and... Uh, um, you know, COVID, as we all ex as we all know, uh, is exceptional. But if these are once in a ten year event, it's a different world than if they're a once in fifty year event. Uh, I know you can't commit the future, but how do you think about what makes exceptional exceptional from the point of view of having a one off? So I think uh, what one answer to that is it would be an extremely bad idea for a politician to set a threshold criteria at which. Um, the tax would kick in because as soon as you do that, actually you have created an anticipation. If we say that it's uh, X billion uh, pounds of debt that we have a one-off wealth tax, then next time we're approaching the threshold, people are going to start um, responding. So it would be a very bad idea to set a um, particular um, criteria, but we do discuss this in some um, depth in the report, but ultimately we concluded this is one of those intrinsically political um, questions of both judgment and narrative. I mean, can uh, a politician um, persuade the public that there is uh, a case for this and to articulate that in a way that does um, make it credibly one-off? I mean, one of the things that we, um, we floated in the report without this being a kind of recommendation was to say you could call this uh, a COVID recovery tax so that a government that wanted in the future to um, levy this again would really have to explain why also they were changing the name of the tax given that coronavirus was many years um, in the past. But to some extent, that's us playing amateur uh, politics. I think in the end, it's for politicians to craft the narrative and to make the case um, that this is one off. And that's not something that really is the commissioners on this report that we can do for ourselves. Can I come back on that? Because there were questions sort of around the, the narrative that underpins your report. And I apologize, I haven't read, read it yet. But um, and so, so we have a certain narrative about where income comes from, you know, that people get skills and they start businesses. And then there's another narrative about where wealth comes from. It's partly inherited, it's partly luck. Um, and do you think it's important to be to, to accompany a measure like this with a very clearly defined narrative about where the wealth distribution comes from and the components of wealth that we think are more or less 
um, based on luck and uh, inheritance. And, and that, that is that part of your, your narrative underpinning this? I think the answer is almost entirely not. I think if, if you have a view that that's what you're wanting to do, then then a, wealth, a general wealth tax is not for you. So if you think that what you're trying to do is deal with specifically inherited wealth, then you want to think about inheritance tax. If you want to think that you, what you're trying to deal with is specifically increases in wealth over some point in time, then you want to think about a capital gains tax. There are other kinds of taxes you can have that are specifically targeting those things. And you can then say, well, this is the kind of thing that I don't like or I want to do to you know, capture more tax based on. And you can design it based on that. As we said, you know, in, in some sense, wealth tax is being very agnostic. It's not take, taking any stand on, you know, why is it have, that you've got wealth? Where has it come from? Is it sort of, in some sense, deserving or undeserving? We're not trying to take any stand on that. Instead, it's very much in the context of if there's a, a need for revenue, if that's something that's been concluded, then what's the kind of, in some sense, fairest way to um, share out the cost of, of raising that revenue? And in some sense, the, the natural thing to think about is, well, what's some measure of an ability to pay? And I think, you know, it's sort of, the, the worst measure apart from all others, in a sense, you know, people can have a case for why a wealth, wealth is not a kind of a perfect measure of someone's ability to pay, but your income on some particular day is clearly going to be a worse measure because incomes are, are going to, you know, fluctuate uh, kind of more wild, wildly, someone will end up suddenly becoming unemployed, and that's kind of having a, something based on their one-off income was not a good idea. We're not going to have data on, you know, what their spending was in a useful way. And so I think in some sense, you know, wealth gives you an, an, a natural measure as something you can use, and, it, you know, I think we will all accept that it's imperfect as a measure of what someone's uh, kind of abilities are, uh, ability to pay is. Um, but I think it's, you'd be hard pushed to find something that's better than that. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, you're not going to like me. I'm going to bring it back to another politics question because it keeps kind of, there's a, a two-part version to this. One is, and I think I'm told Gus O'Donnell raised this, this point that this would have to be done by a conservative government. Um, uh, do, do you have a, a view on what, what I, I, did Gus raise it at launch or whatever that you did? Yeah. yeah. But, but, it, but there's, a, there's another version of that question that's also come up, which is, well, surely it's great. The Tories could really do this because it would only hit their safe seats. And so it wouldn't actually have much impact on their electoral prospects because it, you know, most of the revenue. But, you know, I guess a sort of serious thing behind this would be, have you looked at the sort of, where the revenues would be generated geographically, not just from by income group, to sort of assess what what the politics would look like if you if you did the kind of wealth tax you're looking at. From the looks of his screen, I think Andy's about to put a map for you, although he's muted. Ah, very good. Uh, so for an exemption threshold of half a million pounds, Andy, you're muted, so you can't. So. Yeah, we 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 uh, we did anticipate that question, uh, <laughs> and it's a good one. Uh, we'd love to be able to do it at individual uh, parliamentary constituency level, but the data doesn't allow us to go um, quite that fine grain. But we can show you um, the regional picture, and it's it's probably not one that will surprise people too much that roughly half of the total um, revenue that you would get from um, a wealth tax at a 500,000 per individual um, threshold comes from the south um, of England in that those regions around London, essentially. Um, I suspect that if, um, if you adopted a higher exemption threshold, actually that um, geographical concentration would be even stronger, but I'll let Aaron just... Uh, no, so actually it's, it's, uh, we show in the, in the, in the paper showing the modelling, actually we show that kind of the reverse is true. So what, what you see here is a threshold of half a million people a lot of the people who are captured um, by, the, you know, who pay some amount of tax are people who, you know, in some sense have houses. Uh, we know that house prices are higher in London and the southeast. It's important to note 
you know, it's also the truth that mortgages are higher in London than South East. So it's not as it's not as kind of immediately obvious that um, you're going to uh, have people pay more. But it is true there'll be people who you know bought a house 30 years ago and paid off most of their mortgage or all of their mortgage, and so they will be covered by the tax uh, at this point. As you go to higher thresholds, there are fewer and fewer people who are over that threshold just on the basis of having a very you know at, say five million pounds. There are a few people who have housing and pension wealth, say, that collectively puts them above five million pounds. So what you have is much more business wealth. And actually, business wealth is actually much more equally distributed across the country. And so you see that actually uh, many other parts of the, uh, of the country kind of start lighting up here. And you see a much more equal distribution, actually, as you get to, towards sort of two or five million pounds as a threshold. It should also be uh, noted you... we're talking about per individual. So 500,000 is a million a household, in effect, if you're, if you're with somebody, yeah. So would part of the pitch that you're pushing be a kind of consistent with the le government's levelling up agenda that effectively less, it looks like the tax would be much less uh, levied on uh, parts of the country that the government uh, says it wants to, to level up. Is that part of your pitch or is that just coincidental? It's coincidental in that we're not picking this as the threshold. I think if, if, if a government was saying well, what they want to do is raise money, particularly in the southeast, then we know that raising uh, money or property, which is more expensive in the southeast. And actually, if, if you really wanted to raise money, particularly in the southeast, then doing the revalued council tax would be even stronger because there, the fact if I lived in the southeast, uh, which as you don't, if I lived in the southeast, the fact that I have a huge mortgage on my property as a relatively young person wouldn't uh, help me. I would be paying council tax on the full value of the property if there were a revalued council tax that was somehow proportional to it. And so actually, if they were trying to get something that was more uh, kind of levy uh, kind of tilted towards the southeast and, and the areas that they to, to give money towards the areas that they're trying to do with leveling up then actually something more like a property tax would be more appropriate but it's coincidental i mean it, 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 a government could pick the, a, a, the current government could pick this up and say well actually this has this nice side benefit that we can use to sell it and i think that that is fine it, it is clearly there in the data it wasn't something we were trying to uh, kind of tilt towards but it is clearly there so um just one more question, which I think I, I know I, uh, probably best for you, Arun, given um, you sort of, I think you answered it in a certain form, but I want to pose it in a different form. I mean, for a lot of people, um, they, they form a, an intuitive uh, um, difference between taxing wealth depending on how it was acquired. So in particular, in the current crisis, there will be certain people who've Who's, who's, uh, who've done well out of the crisis and one might feel if one was being basing this on sort of what's morally justified, you would think that wealth would be wealth you particularly want to tax. But, but you've been very particular, as I am saying, you want to be completely neutral. You don't want to try and differentiate at all. Um, can you just run through that argument? Because clearly people think somehow there would be a stronger, I, I suppose it's linked to the politics again, there'd be a stronger argument politically if you could see yourself as taxing different wealth according to moral intuitions about which forms of wealth are more yeah, and so uh, I think, I think, justified than others. Yeah, I think that nicely picks apart sort of the, the two different ways that one could approach this. So one would be to say, we think some people, one, one exam question could be, some people have benefited from the crisis. Can we get some money from them to kind of claw back in some sense, some of the money there is? There've been windfall taxes in this country before. I mean, after the, uh, in 1981, after the conservative government came in, and raised interest rates massively to try and kill inflation, essentially. There was a big gain to banks. And Margaret Thatcher's government uh, brought in a one-off windfall tax on banks, saying, you know, effectively, they've benefited from our policies that weren't intended to benefit them. They just happened to have benefited them. And so we want to get some money back from them. 
similarly, uh, under Tony Blair uh, in 1997, there was a windfall tax on uh, public uh, privatized utilities on the basis that utilities had been sold off at knockdown prices uh, by the Conservative government, and they wanted to get back some of the money because they could see that the value of those uh, businesses had risen a lot. If that's your goal, if that's kind of the, the approach you have, then you know what you want uh, is something that is kind of clearly a windfall type tax on uh, raises in value of people's assets, whatever that might be uh, over this period, either specifically businesses, if you think it's businesses who happen to have profited in some sense, or maybe you want to do all, all shares that people have because individuals who've profited, also you want to kind of capture. And that, that's certainly one approach you could take. If, that's, if your exam question is how do we get money from people who've benefited and kind of claw back some of it for the state, uh, then something like a windfall tax is the approach for, for you, essentially. What we were taking was a very different uh, exam question uh, as our homework, which was uh, we have to think about potentially the idea. I mean, th this project was born of the fact that there was all this speculation in the spring when, you know, shortly after lockdown took place, where they said, you know, at some point there will be uh, a reckoning, a fiscal reckoning, we'll have to pay for this. And so we thought, well, how when, when people were talking about the idea that a wealth tax might be part of the solution, you know, three of us as tax nerds basically got together and said, well, how do we, you know, I figure out if this is a good idea or a bad idea? No one's written about it for forever. And um, how are we going to know if that's a good idea? And so what, what this project was set out to do was to understand, you know, would a wealth tax be a good idea to pay for the crisis if someone has decided they want to raise taxes to pay for the crisis, which is what the speculation was uh, back in the spring. And so I think what we've come out with is if, if the answer, if the question really ends up being at some point, we want to raise taxes uh, just to pay for the crisis in some sense then we think that the most sensible way to do it that's kind of as we said you know raises serious money in an efficient way with relatively low avoidance and being relatively fair in the sense of people's ability to pay uh, the best way to do that is a one-off wealth tax I, I now, uh, sorry i was just going to say i mean one of the issues that people often object to on an annual wealth tax is well why should i save and then have to pay an annual wealth tax surely the people who should pay an annual wealth tax who are those who've inherited and then, of course, as Aaron says, if you're going to do think like that, you might just as well get a better inheritance tax. So I think an annual wealth tax probably raises more of those sorts of moral issues about, well, what is the source of the wealth? And is it good, bad, good wealth or bad wealth than a one off, which, as Aaron said, is, is focusing at revenue and raising it efficiently and fairly? I just, just make one further um, point about the windfall taxes from a practical perspective. Uh, I mean, it's quite nice to say in the abstract that we think that we should um, tax very heavily people who've made unjustified windfalls during the crisis. I would think um, that people would have a field day trying to actually legislate that. So Aaron's given a couple of examples of windfall taxes in the past, but they were quite narrowly constrained on particular institutions that you could define like banks or private utilities. It's gonna be very difficult when, when you get down to it with a windfall um, tax on unjustified profits from coronavirus, how are you in practice going to distinguish um, from the um, business that has uh, at one extreme created the co coronavirus vaccine and on the other extreme kind of profiteered from uh, providing masks or in fact provided masks very helpfully but also made some money. Uh, I think we have to actually also think seriously about the practicalities of delivering that kind of tax. Great. Well, well thanks. Uh, um, this has really been a, a, an interesting session and all of the questions show that this is both uh, a provocative and productive area. And, and I, I know your ambition is to change the conversation. And I think you will uh, surely have succeeded both today, but uh, in future in, in provoking what, what will be, I'm sure, an important uh, conversation. Your um, report is available 
Um, I don't know whether it'll be easy if people Google it, I'm sure, just UK uh, Wealth Tax Commission, uh, sorry, LSE Wealth Tax Commission. But uh, th I think there is also a link that might appear um, in, in the chat that allow people to, to find it. Um, but really, it just remains for me to, to thank uh, um, uh, Arun, Andy and Emma for their wonderful presentations and insights and uh, from, from which we've all benefited. And uh, I look forward in to, to sort of seeing what happens next in terms of how much traction you can get with these ideas. And uh, maybe we should uh, meet again in, after some suitable time period. Maybe the policy will already have happened, so we can be talking about how it's implemented. But uh, in whatever form, uh, it, it would be would be interesting to meet up and take stock of where where we are uh, in future. Uh, thanks to all of those of us, uh, all of those of you who've joined us today uh, for this discussion. I hope you've in, enjoyed it uh, as much as I have. And uh, um, and keep keep an eye out for uh, the many excellent public events that LSE puts on. Um, and I can see um, various links appearing on your screen, all of which are, are worth following. Uh, so thank you very much and good evening.